uh, called, called Finding Faith. It's a short one, just four weeks, and this is the third week of it, so uh, we're, we're making our way through. Our text today is Mark chapter 9. It's so, such a great text. I, I got to preach on this um, back in 2019. Our church, uh, we were able to preach all the way through the Gospel of Mark. We had to finish that in COVID season, but we started it in 2019, and I got to preach on this text uh, back then. So you're free to go go look for that uh, if you would like something that's maybe a little bit more directly uh, in this in this uh, in this uh, chapter of the Bible. Uh, because today, what I want to do is is try to use this interaction between the father of the boy and Jesus, which is just at the very end of the text that was just read. And I want to use it as a little bit of a springboard uh, for our subject today, where, where the father says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, so throughout this series, uh, we're, we're trying to navigate a, a, few, a few primary uh, subjects in the, in the journey of, of, of faith. In the first week, uh, we looked at kind of just the, the big idea of seeking. What, what, is, what, is, the gen, like what, what is the journey of, of seeking? What, are, what does that entail? Last week, uh, we tried to lean into the subject of, of doubt. And last week, we, we just owned the fact that, that we have doubts. Um, and we, we tried to explore that. Uh, the, the, the word doubt means, uh, it's, it's, it's a, Latin, a Latin word, and it means to be of two minds. That's what doubt means. And so we experience doubt. When one of our beliefs seems to be untrue, seems to be false. And so that's the, the, the beauty of doubt is that it's, it, there's, there's two things going on. You, you have a belief and it's being threatened. And so there's this, this mix of, of realities going on uh, in, in, in your heart or in your mind. And maybe you can relate to that. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Last week we looked at one of the disciples. His name was Thomas. And what happened with Thomas was that all the disciples uh, were gathered, but Thomas wasn't with them, and Jesus shows up, and all of the disciples, minus Thomas, get to meet the resurrected Lord. And they realize, like, oh, the, the resurrection's true. This, this is all true. Thomas comes back to the house. Jesus is gone. And they're like, boy, do we have a story to tell you. And Thomas says, I don't buy it unless I see it with my own eyes. And then he goes further. He says, unless I touch him with my own hands, I will never believe. And uh, we saw the, the wrestling that Thomas had with his doubts. And Thomas ended up with the nickname, Doubting Thomas. You know, doubt is part of the journey with Jesus. And as we saw last week in the way that he interacted with Thomas, he wants to help us every step of the way with kindness and clarity. Last week, we saw that as Thomas had all of his doubts, Jesus shows up a second time. And when Jesus shows up, it's like Jesus is generous with Thomas. Jesus is like, I, I hear you want to touch my scars. Here's my hands. Is that good? You, you, want, you want to touch my side? There's, like, there's a, a generosity of spirit that Jesus has with Thomas, even as Thomas is experiencing his doubts. And then Jesus says, but stop doubting. Jesus says to him, you, you can believe. And so there's this kindness and this clarity, this, this reality of Jesus meeting Thomas right where he was at, but then telling Thomas, like, you don't have to stay there. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So today, I, I, if last week was doubt, today in some ways I want to try to address the other end of the spectrum, which would be the word certainty. So if the presence of doubt can cause us to freak out, which for some of us, that's absolutely true. I want us to see that the expectation, the expectation of certainty 
can set us up for failure. So let's take a look. First, why, why certainty is a problem. The, the word certain, these are definitions that you can find in dictionaries. The definition of the word certain is fixed, settled, or without a doubt. Without a doubt. Have you, have you ever really thought about, I mean, I'm sure somebody at some point in your time has asked you the question, are you certain of that? You, you say something like the Pittsburgh Steelers are the greatest football team that's ever lived, and they say, are you certain of that? So somebody, that sequence has happened to you at some point in time. Somebody has said to you, are you certain of that? And have you ever really thought about the question that they're asking you? In light of the technical definition, fixed, settled, without a doubt. I mean, think of some of the examples that you might say that you're certain of. You know, thankfully, we are not in a political year, or an election year. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Uh, but it's coming. It's coming. And you might say that you are certain of the candidate that you're going to vote for. But if you've been around for like more than two minutes, you, 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 are you sure? Are you certain about that? Like, you know, maybe you've heard of something called October Surprises. Well, over the last few election cycles, it's not October surprises. It's like a surprise every six days. There's surprises all the time. And you might say, I'm certain of this candidate. But if you're honest and you think about your answer, you would actually say, oh, no, I absolutely believe there's a possibility that there's something about that candidate that I don't know that could come out that could cause me to no longer be certain. And if you think about it, your answer would actually be, no, I'm not certain. Uh, historical events. When you think about a history book, are you sure? Are you certain of those dates? Uh, for example, uh, you know, when, when was the, uh, uh, the uh, Declaration of Independence voted on? July 4th, right? That's what everybody thinks, but it actually wasn't July 4th. It was July 2nd. So much so that John Adams said, July 2nd, this will be a day that will never be forgotten. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it is forgotten. July, it, it, July 4th is what we celebrate. And the reason we celebrate on July 4th is that's because when it was actually, it became official in a sense. But it was voted on on July 2nd. And so, you know, if you said, are you sure? Are you certain that it was, elect, that it was voted on July 4th? The answer is actually, you shouldn't be so certain. Uh, let's get one more close, uh, closer to home. Yeah, what you ate for breakfast. Now you say, get out of here. Of course I know what I ate for breakfast. I mean, you know, it's, it's 11.10. So, you know, we're not that far from breakfast. Of course you know. Are you 100% certain that you do not have this morning's breakfast mixed up with yesterday morning's breakfast? Are you sure that the bagel was today? Is there, is there any percentage of a chance that the bagel was yesterday? Is there? I, I, I think the answer is, is absolutely yes. There is, a, there is a chance that I got my breakfast mixed up, that the breakfast I ate yesterday is the one that I think I ate this morning. Now look, the, these are the things that philosophers love to do, right? They love to talk about specific definitions, and they love to ask you questions that leave you all flustered. It's, it's what philosophers do, and you, you, know, you, you kind of just have to put up with it. But they're, they're, they've spent a lot of time, philosophers have, on this issue of certainty. And certainty is a house of cards. Rene Descartes, uh, you know, a famous philosopher, 
He, he, and I mean, plenty of others did this too, but he like spent his life's work on this question. He's invested an incredible amount of time and energy to come up with the questions of what can you be certain about? And you might be familiar with probably the most famous uh, sentence uh, that Descartes came up with, and that is, I think, therefore I am. And so as he's trying to figure out what can you be certain of, he comes, you know, goes through, as philosophers do, he goes through all of his stuff to come down to this sentence, I think, therefore I am. And as he then tried to start building back, like if we can be confident of that, then what else can we be confident of? And and I'll just summarize it for you. You want to know what philosophers think you can be sure of? That you exist and math. Like that's about it. I mean, there might be a couple other things, but that's about about it. That's where they land, is that's the stuff that you can have certainty on. Well, what about, maybe you would say, okay, but you know, a lot of philosophers, they're not Christians. What about, what about Christians? Well, you know, 500 years ago, one of the most famous theologians ever, his name is John Calvin. John Calvin said, while we teach that our faith should be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt. So what John Calvin is saying is, you know, in a sense, we, we teach that, but if you think about a technical definition, we, we can't even... We can't even imagine of that kind of certainty. We can't imagine it without some tinge of doubt. And when we treat certainty as the goal, it sets us up for trouble. Re- regardless of how you feel about the use of the word certainty, our felt need for certainty creates a vulnerability in our journey of faith with Jesus. Why? Because we just talked about this last week, we doubt. Doubt is part of the journey. Doubt is part of the journey with Jesus. And if the technical definition of certain or certainty is without a doubt, then anytime you doubt, it all starts to crumble. It all starts to fall apart. Look, think about your spouse. If you're married, your spouse can tell you to your face that they love you and that they are in it for the long haul. But are you certain? Is there any percentage chance that that is not true? Some in this room have experienced that reality. Some of you have felt the heaviness and the significance of the loss of certainty. It's a a dangerous place to be. And allowing that to be the standard is like a rabbit hole. Or maybe more in biblical terms, it's like a foothold. You know what I'm talking about? In Ephesians chapter 4, there's this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church uh, in Ephesus uh, 2,000 years ago. And as he gets to the second half of the letter, he starts to list out for them. And he basically says, hey, I just told you what the Christian faith is, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then I want to show you what it looks like. And in chapter 4, he just starts listing out things like this is what a Christian lives like. And as he gets towards the end of chapter 4, one of the things that he says is this. If you don't address your anger, if you allow your anger to boil over in your heart, then you are letting the devil have a foothold in your life. That's what he says. He says, if you don't address your anger, you are creating a a space. That's what he means by a foothold. If you've ever climbed a mountain or climbed a rock face, like you need a little hold to put your foot in, your little hold to put your foot in. That's a foothold, a little gap, a little space. 
And Paul says, one example would be if you don't deal with your anger, you're creating a space. And you know what Satan wants to do? Stick his foot in there, stick a wedge in there, and start to pry you to pieces. Start to break you up. You know, the Bible tells us in multiple places that our battle is not against the physical world, it's against the spiritual world. And Paul is listing one of the places where we can be vulnerable if we don't deal with our doubt, we open up this opportunity for a foothold of Satan. Well, then two chapters later, in chapter six, he says, he talks, he uses this analogy, and he talks about the armor of God. And he says that I want, here's this, put on the armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our battle's not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. In 2 Corinthians chapter two, Paul, the same author, he warns us about being outwitted by Satan and he says we are not ignorant of his schemes. You, you, you see what Paul's inviting us into? He's saying that, that Satan is like a lion roaming around seeking whom he can devour. He is testing your weaknesses. He's testing the perimeter. He's poking around in your heart and he's looking for a soft spot. He's looking for a space. He's looking for a foothold. That's what he wants. And in the culture we are in, this, this idea of certainty is a vulnerability. It, it's, it's a danger to hold certainty as the standard because Satan, one of the reasons is that Satan wants to attack your certainty. Bertrand Russell, uh, the, you know, the, the 20th century British philosopher and mathematician, uh, he was an atheist, but th this is what he said. The demand for certainty is one which is natural to man, but is nevertheless an intellectual vice. Bertrand Russell was a mathematician. You would think he'd be all about certainty, but he's saying, no, it's an intellectual vice. He's saying it's a defect. It's a danger. Watch out for the demand of certainty. You know, one of the most famous Christians over the last few years who's walked away from their faith, it's a, a guy, they, 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 he's known as Rhett. He's part of a little comedy duo, Rhett and Link. And when Rhett shared his story of walking away from the Christian faith, one of the things that he said in his deconversion story, this is, this is what he said. He said it felt so liberating to let go of the appetite for certainty. To let go of the appetite for certainty. But what if that was the wrong appetite in the first place? What if what Rhett thinks he's getting out of is actually a problem in all kinds of places? Certainty is an intellectual vice. It's a, def a defect that will get you in trouble. So the standard of certainty creates an unnecessary vulnerability that the Bible does not, does not require of you. Secondly, why confidence is better. So if certainty isn't the way we want to go, what about confidence? See, it's, it's logically correct, and I know this is uncomfortable, but it is logically correct to say that we cannot have 100% certainty that the message of Christianity is true. But guess what? It is also logically correct that we cannot have 100% certainty that Christianity is false either. Look, do, do, do you realize that Christianity is evidence-based? Christianity is never afraid of the details. There is a 2,000 year track record of this. 
Christianity is never trying to hide from the, detail, uh, from the details. It is, it is, it is, it is evidence-based, and it has incredible evidence. It's not arbitrary. It's not subjective. It's not some stab in the dark. The Bible is leaning into evidence. Here's an example. The same author I talked about a second ago, the Apostle Paul, wrote a letter to a local church in the, in the city of Corinth, and when you get to what we refer to as the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, it's a long chapter, and Paul is writing to this church. To, this church has got a million problems. If you know about the church in Corinth, they got a lot of problems. And in chapter 15, he is trying to, to solidify their, their, their faith, their, 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 their journey with Jesus. And this is what he does in chapter 15. He starts off the chapter by giving them the details of the gospel. He says, this is it. These are the details. And he hits them. And then he says, it's all predicated on the historicity of the resurrection. He says, all of that is dependent upon the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It is dependent upon the fact that the grave is empty and that the person that was dead in there is now alive. That, that is, that is, the, it is it's predicated on that. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is he lists eyewitnesses. And not just one or two. I mean, he lists himself and he lists some others. But then he says, there were 500 he says there were 500 people that saw Jesus alive. Go talk to him. You know, the Bible was written over the next couple decades after Jesus' resurrection, uh, much of it. And, and part of what these authors are inviting is go, go, talk to the, go talk to the eyewitnesses. When I preached through the gospel of Mark a couple years ago, like I referenced, there's one passage in this gospel where there's just two sons mentioned. And it's just kind of random. And Bible scholars are like, why does Mark mention these two sons? And the best guess that Bible scholars have is that Mark mentioned those sons because they were still alive. And Mark was saying, go talk to them. You go ask them. I'm not making this up. There's eyewitnesses. There's, there, there, there's people who saw the risen Christ. And so as Paul is working with this church in Corinth, he first gives them the gospel predicated on the resurrection. Then he gives them eyewitnesses. And then the third thing he says is if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is empty. This is all a sham. Do you see? Paul is not afraid of the evidence at all. He's saying, go investigate it. Evidence matters. And the evidence for the resurrection on which all of Christianity stands and falls is really strong. You know, one of my favorite things to, to think about is that if... Jesus rose from the dead. Let me start the other way. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why do you care about anything he said? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then we should care about every single thing he said. And the basis of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul says, if the evidence is false, if this is wrong, this is all a waste. He has space for the possibility that it's not true, but he believes it is true. And he believes it with his whole self, so much so that he died for it. Paul became a martyr. Well, a guy that I quote occasionally, his name's John Lennox, and he's uh, over in England. He's a, math, he's a mathematician as well. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a Christian, and I've, I find him to be pretty helpful. Um, he did a thing with uh, an organization called Veritas Forum recently, and uh, the one, in the one little section, somebody asks him, does he ever doubt his faith? And John Lennox is probably maybe in his 70s now, late 60s, I'm not sure. 
And he said that he went to Oxford University when he was 18 or 19 years old. And he showed up at Oxford, and right after he got there, someone says, they look at him and they say, do you believe in God? And then the person's like, oh, never mind, you're Irish. All the Irish believe in God, and they fight about it all the time. And John Lennox said, it's not the first time that I was ever asked that question. He's like, but it struck me deeply that that, that is a viable way to think about things. He comes from a country that is deeply religious. John Lennox's parents were Christians. John Lennox's grandparents were Christians. His nation is known for its religious wars and religious infighting. It's in the culture. It's in the air. Now he is at skeptical, you know, high-minded Oxford University, and he begins to realize, do I just believe this because of what I grew up around? And he said from that day forward, he has committed himself to investigating Christianity at every turn. He invites all kinds of people who have different views than him to argue with him. And, to, and to, he wants to sit with them and he wants to hear what they have to say because he wants to challenge his faith. And he said, why? Because I don't want to be duped. I, I don't want to be faked out. And now he's been doing this for decades. And you know what he says? I have more confidence now in my Christian faith in the story of the gospel than I did when I was 18 years old. And poking at it and testing it and putting it up for debate has been the key to his journey of confidence. Confidence, not certainty. See, Christianity is not a house of cards. I think the better way to think about Christianity would be this. Your, your, your faith in Christianity is like a platform that sits on dozens and dozens of pillars. Dozens and dozens. House of cards, what happens? Certainty, you pull one thing out and it all falls apart because certainty means without a doubt. But confidence, confidence is like a platform that has dozens and dozens of pillars. One pillar might get knocked out and you might be like, huh, I, di I, didn't, I didn't see that coming. I didn't think about that. But it's just one pillar. You, you, you may have grown up with some ideas about maybe the scientific world or the fossil record and something that you learn in your first uh, science class at college, or you watch a documentary, or you read a book, and you, and you walk away and you're like, that messes with everything that I thought about that idea. Well, if Christianity is a platform that's held up by dozens of pillars, you, 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 can, you can test them, and one might even fall apart, and you'd be like, oh, like I don't think I understood that correctly. I'm not sure that that's what the Bible even taught. It creates this, this sense of, 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 of confidence and, and assurance in what you're holding to. Christianity is not a house of cards. It's a platform held up by dozens of pillars. Uh, a, a, a practical example. I, I know a bunch of you in this room have, over the last few months, boarded an airplane and flew to your destination. Now let's talk about certainty. Are you certain that your plane was going to take off, fly at 30,000 feet, and land at its location? safely. <laughs> are, are you certain? And yet, I, I've heard about your trips. I don't know of anybody who got to the gate and said, no, I just, I'm not certain, can't get on the plane. No, you, you got on the plane because you have a level of confidence that this metal tube, by the way, is going to be launched 30,000 feet in the air and somehow safely return from that 
and you're, you're going to live to, to tell about it. You have, you have a level of confidence. What I'm trying to invite you to see is that if we're actually specific about the issue of certainty, we're making decisions all the time we don't have certainty about. And to hold the Bible to that standard puts us in a vulnerable spot. Back to 924, uh, chapter 9, verse 24 of Mark. The Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And can you relate to that? We believe, but there are parts of us that do not believe. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, he said this, we see, but we see through a mirror dimly. We, so we do see things, we do know things, but it's a foggy mirror. We don't see them perfectly clear. Not yet. He says that day is coming, but right now there's a fogginess. There, there's, there, there, it's, not, it's not full. We see and we know, but we don't see and know it all. Not perfectly clear. Let, let me ask it to you this way. Do, do, do you believe that the God of heaven, the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God, the one who created all that is, is big enough and wise enough to be able to get the news about who he is to us? I, I think that's a question that you should wrestle with. Do you think it's possible that with all of these limitations, that God is big enough and wise enough to be able to get the news about who he is and what he's done to us? Look, if God is not personal, then I agree, we are in trouble. If, if God is not the initiator, then I agree, we are in trouble. But a way to illustrate this would be this. If you were given the job of taking the gospel to ants, not A-U-N-T-S, A-N-T-S, insects, if your job was to, this is the task, break up in teams of four and figure out how to get the gospel to ants. Now, first of all, that seems impossible. But let's just say you were actually committed to trying. If you were going to devise a way to do that, wouldn't you have to simplify the story like in excruciating ways to try to get it down to the level that an ant could understand? You understand this is an illustration. Multiply that by infinity, and you still have a barely a sense of what we're talking about with God trying to communicate to humans who he is and what he's doing in the world. And yet I believe he's big enough to do that. I think God knows exactly how to distill the story of who he is and what he's doing in the world in a way that humans can grasp. We don't get it all. We don't understand every little bit of it. We certainly do not understand the fullness of God. I don't think we're going to understand the fullness of God ever. We don't become God in, in, in the kingdom. It's a life of learning. It's a life of exploring. And right now, we are looking through a mirror, and we are looking through a mirror dimly. And yet the Bible is screaming to us that God has communicated that God has indeed told us what we need to know about him and we can actually hold on to it. Yes, we admit that it's partial. Yes, we admit that. And you know this, if you've read your Bible, the people of God got Jesus' first coming wrong. His followers got his resurrection wrong. You know, we're probably gonna have some things wrong about his second coming. But that does not mean that we cannot know the core of it. It does not mean that God is not capable of being able to get to us, little us, in comparison to God, that he is able to get to us the message of how it is that we can be reconciled to him. 
We can't meet the technical definition of certainty, but we can be extremely confident in the evidence. Now, why confidence is still not enough. Even if we have full confidence in the, in the evidence of the gospel, right? Like I just told you in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives the details of the gospel. Let, let me, uh, you know, we could hand out a quiz and you could get every question on the quiz right. But guess what? It doesn't mean your heart believes it. Just, just because you have the evidence and the, ever, uh, the evidence is, is overwhelming and you should have full confidence in that evidence, the Bible says that it, it, you, there's actually a next step. You have every reason to be confident in the details of Christianity. But does your heart believe it? That is what the idea of faith is. Faith is is to take action on what we say we believe. That, that's the idea that the Bible is putting before us. Maybe you've heard of the author C.S. Lewis. Part, part of C.S. Lewis's journey to faith was him actually beginning to doubt his atheism. It's part of how C.S. Lewis came to find Christianity as, as, as true and to put his, his faith in Christ. And this happened with some of his friends too. A guy named Sheldon. Sheldon Vanaken, I think is how you say his last name, Sheldon Vanaken. And, and Sheldon wrote about his journey of beginning to wrestle with his atheism. And so it put him in this position of like, what, el what else is there? And he begins to look at Christianity and he begins to investigate Christianity in response to his doubts that he was having about his atheism. And, and this is what he said. As he investigated Christianity, he said, Christianity seemed probable to me, but there is a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of those. And I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. You see what's happening with Sheldon? Sheldon has investigated Christianity. He's found it probable. He sees the evidence, confidence in that evidence. And yet he, he comes to the edge and realizes there's, there's going to be a gap. There is, there is, there's a difference, as he says, between the probable and the proved or between the confidence and the certainty. So he's hanging around on the edge, and then he decides, I'm gonna go back. And he turns around, and when he turns around, what he realizes is that there's a gap behind him too. And this is what he says. My God, there was a gap behind me too. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble. But what of the leap to rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty that he was not. If I were to accept, I might and probably would face the thought through the years. Perhaps, after all, it's a lie. I've been had. But if I were to reject, I would certainly face the haunting, terrible thought. Perhaps it's true and I have rejected my God. He goes on to say, this was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. 
There was only one thing to do. Once I had seen the gap behind me, I turned away from it and flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. See, Sheldon realized that certainty was impossible. You can turn away from Christianity, but what are you turning to? There there aren't other options. This is the condition of the world in which we live. Certainty is impossible. Sheldon had the confidence that Christianity was true, but he still had to make a choice. If there really is a gap in front of us and a gap behind us, then here's what I want to invite you to do. In the New Testament, we are told that if if, if God gave us his own son, then won't he give us all good things? You see, what we're being invited to see is this. If you're wrestling with, is this something that I can actually trust with my whole life? The message of the New Testament is, if there's a God who would give something like Jesus Christ on your behalf, then that's a God that you can trust. If God would do that for you, then he's the kind of gift giver that you can trust everything to. And billions of people in the last 2,000 years have heard that, seen that, and as Sheldon did, flung themselves over the gap towards Jesus. Now back to Mark 9, and we'll finish with this. In Mark 9, we see the father take action on the faith that he has. The father says to Jesus, you know, would you heal my son? And what what does Jesus say back? I mean, Jesus says, you know, "I, I can if you believe. Is, is, the, is the essence of what Jesus says. Now, if you look in your Bible, he doesn't say, I can if you believe, but commentators agree that's the essence of Jesus' point. Jesus is saying, I can do that if, if you believe. And so think about this sequence here. Jesus says, if you believe me, I'll heal your son. The father says, I'm struggling to believe. I'm struggling with doubts. Jesus then heals his son. You catch that flow? I can if you believe. The father's like, I believe, but I'm really, I am really, really struggling. And Jesus heals his son. Man, what do we learn from that? A lot of things, but let me give you one. Jesus is drawn to neediness, not holiness. And this is good news, whether you know it or not. Jesus does not look at this father and say to him, I am God in the flesh. How dare you doubt this? Why don't you go, clean yourself up at the temple, repent, get your doubts cleared up, come on back, and then I will help you. Now, Jesus doesn't say that, not even close to that. Jesus is showing us that saving faith is not to say, I am faithful, now bless me. That that is not the message that Jesus is offering. You see, if you say that, I've lived a faithful life, now bless me. I don't struggle with doubt, I'm so faithful, bless me then you know what that is? That's faith in you. That's you standing before Jesus and saying, look at my faith, look at me. It's faith in you. It's faith in your faith. It's being your own savior and Lord. It's not faith in Jesus. But to say, as this boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I'm really struggling here. I'm struggling with doubt. But would you help me? Friends, that's saving faith. It is faith in Jesus instead of faith in you or faith in faith. We don't need faith in ourselves. 
We need faith in Jesus. You know, one commentator on Mark chapter 4 says this, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. It's coming to Jesus and saying, I don't have what it takes here. I'm, I'm coming and it's all I got is a trust fall. Is <laughs> all I've got is to fling myself on your hands. True faith does not take confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weaknesses of his followers. Do you know how many people get caught up in this? You get caught up in the strength of your own faith, or you get caught up in the train wreck of other followers of Jesus. The Bible says that's not what you're supposed to look at. You're supposed to look at him. He's the focal point. He's what you're trusting. You're turning to him and recognizing that he is the one who can save. You know, we talked about this before, but it correlates nicely. Religion says, I obey, then God blesses me. But, but the gospel is this message that because God has blessed me, now I obey. You see, the order gets reversed. It's not my performance that wins God's favor. It's God's performance through, the, through Jesus on my behalf that causes me to love him and respond in obedience. This is the beauty of the gospel. Here we have a man who says, I don't have faith, I don't have strong faith, I got a ton of doubts, I don't think I got what it takes, but will you help me? And Jesus' response is basically, I can work with that. I can work with that. that, that's actually what, all you need is need. It's asking Jesus to accept me, not because I am so certain, but because of who Jesus actually is. One of my favorite comments that I make every once in a while is that it is a miracle that anyone's a Christian. You know that? It is a miracle that anyone's a Christian. It is a miracle that Jesus came and lived the perfect life, went to the cross, died, and rose again. And it is a miracle that he takes his resurrection power and spreads it all over the earth. And that simply by, by trusting that Jesus stands in your place, that Jesus has won it for you, you can actually be brought from dead to alive. It's incredible. You know, when we come to this table, which we end our service with every week, I know sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable because when we come to the table, I usually say something like, if you're a Christian, then this table is for you. And it makes all the sense in the world. Well, th this is why. Because this table represents the broken body of Jesus, the spilled blood of Jesus on your behalf. And the message of the gospel is that if you have thrown yourself on him, if you have put your hope, if you have acted on your beliefs and put your faith in Jesus, then you've actually been made alive in him. And this meal is a meal for those who've done that. And so we come and we partake so that we never forget. We remember until he comes. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, then this doesn't make sense. The invitation for you is to actually take, take this good news about who Jesus is and instead of eating bread and drinking a cup, actually receive Christ. Fling yourself across the gap and trust in Christ. There are prayers that will be on the screen and they're in your bulletin. And one of those prayers is specifically about the journey of trying to figure out truth. It's in front of you every week if you're a regular here. If it's your first time, take a look. That language is nothing magical about that language. It's a tool. It's meant as a resource to help you navigate how to talk to Jesus about your desire to know who he is. 
He wants to walk with you in grace through that entire journey. If our servants will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this text, and we thank you for this father and his vulnerability. We thank you that he uh, didn't try to fake it, didn't try to fake it till he made it. He, he was actually honest right in front of Jesus. I'm, I'm standing here, Jesus. I'm asking, but I'm riddled with doubt. I'm full of it. God, we thank you that you meet us right there, that this recognition of how inadequate our faith is, of how weak it is, of how partial it is, you're not, you're not surprised. And yet when we ask for your help, you are so ready. We thank you for your grace that you pour out so generously on us. Thank you for this bread and this cup. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.